Thank you for listening to the Life Church of Kansas City, Missouri. Consider supporting by giving at tlckcmo.com, subscribing, and sharing this message with your friends. God bless you. Well, thank you, and it is good to be in Kansas City at the Life Church. You may be seated, um, and I, the fact that you'd come out on a, on a Friday night to hear me talk about what I'd like to talk about more than anything else in the world is kind of a real privilege. That y'all, my wife, who uh, travels with me some, and uh, I'm sure gets a little tired of me talking about this stuff, but uh, it is. I, I am so thankful that uh, I'm a Pentecostal, unabashedly. Uh, if I, you know. I think I'm at the point in my life I could be whatever I wanted to be, but I am excited to be a Pentecostal. Excited to be a oneness Pentecostal. I'm so glad that uh, probably early 1930s, almost almost 100 years ago now, 90, I think 92, 91 years ago, I grew up in a little village in Canada just across the border from the state of Maine, about six miles into New Brunswick, a place called McAdam. New Brunswick. It was a railroad town. Uh, the reason it existed is a southern line and the east-west line, north-south line, east-west line met at this little town. My dad, my grandfather, my great-grandfather all worked for the Canadian Pacific Railway. Uh, Wynn Stairs came to that little town uh, and had a street service, and my grandmother was the second person in that town to receive the baptism of the Spirit. And that decision by her changed the trajectory of our family. And uh, in those days, it was, you know, there were, there were the days of street services on the back of a flatbed truck. You'd have church. People might throw tomatoes at you or rotten eggs or anything. It wasn't uh, a popular decision. And over the years, that little church grew to be the, the biggest church in town. That's not necessarily a big church in a little town. It's only about, it's only about 1,200 people left in that town. But uh, the decision that she made to commit her life, and then my parents came into the church, and the year that I was born, my dad and mom prayed through. So I don't know anything else but being a oneness Pentecostal. I, this is who I am, and uh, I'm so thankful that I, they made that decision. I, I, I always have a great incredible respect for my elders, the people who came before, I don't know if I could have made the decision that they made. Uh, but they made that decision to commit their life to Christ, and I'm thankful that they did. And, and, the, and the way in which they committed their life to Christ was in a Pentecostal way. That was back when they used to tell jokes about Pentecostals. We were holy rollers. People would say, I remember as a kid growing up, they'd say, are you going to the, are you going to the dance on Sunday morning? People say, well, no, where's the dance on Sunday morning? Oh, it's down at the Pentecostal church. They thought that was funny. Uh, but, you know, since, since those days, from, from 1932 till 2021, Pentecostal worship has invaded the Christian, the broader Christian world. And wherever you go now, you see people worship like we, uh, like they used to think we were strange for worshiping. Well, I don't want to, you didn't come to hear my story. I want to talk to you about uh, Pentecostalism. One is Pentecostalism uh, in particular, and tell you that this evening the story, and I, and I can see that moving from a Mac to a PC, 
my, uh, that, that word is restoring. That G isn't on there for a special effect. That's just, um, at the office, I see Brother Blackburn just came in over here, so he, I ribbed him for years to get a real computer, to get a Mac. Uh, but uh, PCs, they do what they want to do, I guess, drop Gs. But it is restoring the face. How, how to, uh, Pentecostals privilege the book of Acts. If, if someone's brand new to the church or you're witnessing to your neighbor and uh, they don't know much about the Bible and you bring this big black book and set it on their kitchen table and they ask the question, where should I start? We typically would say start in the book of Acts because the book of Acts is, is the story of how, how the church came to be, into being. And uh, so we privilege the book of Acts. It's kind of the, the canon within the canon, the, the central core of our scripture and early Pentecostals wanted to go back to Pentecost. They wanted to restore the faith that had been lost. Uh, I won't take a, a long time in ancient history. Um, let's see if I can get this to work, wherever I point, that way, this way. Um, maybe that way. All right. Um. The earliest church, obviously we have the story of the earliest church in the, book of, in the Bible. The book of Acts is the, the, the most uh, fully fleshed out history of the, of the text. But unfortunately the Christian story is not a story of each succeeding generation becoming more and more like Christ. There is really a falling away that happens. And, and sometimes if, if you had to pick a, a, a point in history that you would say, you know, what... How, how far and how bad did the church fall from its original intention? And so sometimes we call it the Constantinian fall of the church. So for the first couple of hundred years of the existence of the church, the church was persecuted. In the book of Acts, it was persecuted by uh, Jewish followers of, of, who rejected Jesus, who were, who were uh, principally Jewish people. But not long after that, the persecution changes from being Jewish persecution of Christians to Roman persecution of Christians. And so throughout the first couple of centuries of the history of the church, there, there is persecution. Not widespread persecution always. Usually it's localized um, until you get to the beginning of the, the fourth century under Diocletian, uh, Emperor Diocletian. By that time, um, emperors got to, got to think that they were pretty special. Uh, Julius Caesar, you remember him from, from high school? Followed by Caesar Augustus. When Caesar Augustus died, somebody suggested that he would join the pantheon of Roman gods. It was a very polytheistic society, and uh, adding another god to the conglomeration of gods wasn't, wasn't a real big deal. And so when Caesar Augustus died, they said, He's, he's with the gods. And then it's not a long stretch from moving from the fact that you go to be with the gods when you die, that you are a god when you're alive. So the Roman emperors got to insist that, that their citizens pay obeisance to them, uh, worship them like they were gods. And Christians obviously were committed to worshiping only Jesus Christ. So by the time Diocletian comes... Uh, he's pretty insistent that everybody worship him, and you have this widespread persecution. 
that really uh, does incredible uh, impact on the church. But on the heels of Diocletian is an, another Roman emperor called uh, um, Constantine. Constantine uh, was raised in Gaul, uh, what we would call France today, and um, without going into too much history to to uh, All right, back me up one if you would. All right, thank you. Um, Constantine wants to be the, there, there are multiple emperors of Rome. He decides he wants to be the sole emperor. So he makes his way from Gaul into Rome. The Roman um, Senate says, please don't come, stay away. Uh, he, he stops at, at uh, Milvian Bridge. And he's worried about the battle that's coming the next day. And, and uh, in the process of getting ready for that battle, he has a vision. He sees, he thinks, a, a sign of the cross in the sky. He sees the first two letters of the word Christ. So in, in Greek, it's chiro. Uh, and uh, he hears these words, he thinks, in this sign conqueror. So the next day he goes to battle and he wins that battle. That's 312 A.D., and in that year, he, he issues what's called the Edict of Milan, which legalizes Christianity. And in a, in, in a period of just a few years, Christianity goes from being an outlawed religion to being the religion of the emperor. And uh, in 325, uh, Constantine calls a council. So I don't know how deep Constantine's conversion was, um, I'm not sure scholars are quite, quite agree on that. He didn't get baptized until his deathbed. So some people suggest that maybe he really wasn't really a committed Christian. There was an idea floating around in those days that, that baptism forgave sins, but they didn't know how to get sins forgiven after, you're, after you were baptized. So there was an idea that some people had, just hold off baptism until you absolutely know you're going to die. And then get baptized so you get the slate clean. That might be the best reading of Constantine. I'm not sure. It may have been that he just wasn't truly a Christian. Before he died, he wanted to take care of business. Uh, but he, he does see Christianity as an, as an ally to help him unite the kingdom or the, the empire. Um, he wants to you know, have this. this if, if everybody has the same faith, it becomes a little easier to make a, a united empire. And there is in the, in the Christian church at this particular time a, a uh, controversy over the nature of Jesus Christ. Was Jesus Christ fully God or was he, for lack of a better term, a demigod? He, was, he half, was he half God? Was he a demi-urge, sometimes they, they call him? Or in Latin, some people said he was a tertium quid, a third thing. You had God, you had man. And then in between God and man, you had this person of Jesus Christ. That, that theology is called Arianism. Again, I, I will get beyond this and get to Pentecost quickly. But I, I need to set it up if you'll, if you'll just stay with me just a moment. Um, so you have a, Constantine calls a council at Nicaea to sort out who the person of Jesus Christ is. And it's really against the Arians and ultimately what becomes Trinitarianism. But also, uh, I 
the people that were closest to oneness Pentecostals were, were at Nicaea. And some people call this the Constantinian fall of the church because what happens is that Constantine inserts himself into the, into the life of the church. The government in the church then become one. And the church goes from being persecuted by the Roman government to using the Roman government to persecute people who don't believe like they believe. And before long, we're into the Dark Ages. And then as we come out of the Dark Ages with Martin Luther, uh, when he suggests that, that we must depend on Scripture, the Scripture alone is the rule of faith, uh, we start this restoring of the process back. So that's kind of where I'm going to pick up the story after Luther um, in what's often called continental pietism and talk about heartfelt religion as we restore the church. But before we do that, let me, let me talk about what Pentecostalism was called when it was birthed. We, people weren't sure exactly what to, what to call Pentecostalism. Some people called it the tongues movement because one of the things that Pentecostals do is they speak in other tongues as the Spirit gives utterance. So people said it's the tongues movement. They, uh, some people call it a renewal movement. Uh, so the Spirit comes in periodically, people would suggest, and renews the church. So um, this, in, in the latter part of the 20th century, there was a charismatic movement, and that's the next kind of word in the slide. But oftentimes it's called the charismatic renewal, and there's this idea that the church has lost its way periodically and needs to be renewed. Now, I'm going to argue this evening that Pentecostalism is not so much a renewal movement but it's a restorational movement. We're trying to restore the church back to its apostolic roots, not give a periodic renewal of, of the spirit. Um, and uh, so the charismatic means gifted. It really comes from uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 12, the gifts of the spirit, the charismas. So tongues is one of the gifts of the spirit. So you have this charismatic movement that... Uh, takes off in the latter part of the 20th century. And then what the earliest Pentecostals called themselves, and it was kind of set up this restoration impulse from what they called themselves, the earliest Pentecostals called themselves members of the apostolic faith. So they, they wanted to restore the church to its apostolic roots. So what kind of church are we? We're an apostolic faith church. What did they do in the book of Acts? That's what we want to do in the 19th or 20th century. So they, they, they didn't call themselves Pentecostals. So that comes a little bit later in, in history, about 10 years in before Pentecostal, the word Pentecostal becomes widespread. The, but the earliest people called themselves members of the apostolic faith. So, uh, this, we found here. So the restoration impulse, my slides are going to be not the best, um, but the restoration impulse is the impulse to restore the church to its apostolic roots free from the accretions of history so on the on the left hand side of the slide you see this that's a paper that was published by the azusa street the famous azusa street revival anybody heard of azusa street so this this is the first issue of the azusa street newsletter september of 1906 it's the lead story pentecost has come Uh, los angeles being visited by a, by a revival of Bible salvation. And I can't even read my own. But, but as recorded, notice that last phrase, as recorded in the book of Acts. So the earliest Pentecostals were saying, what did they do in the book of Acts? What we're doing in Azusa Street 
what we're going to do in Topeka, Kansas, what we're going to do in Houston, Texas. We're, we're trying to restore the church to its apostolic roots. So you, you're going to hear me this weekend talk a lot about this notion of restoration impulse, this a restorationism, this idea to go back to the beginning. Sometimes it's called primitivism, which means kind of to go back to the, the prime or go back to the first. Years ago, uh, in St. Louis, one of the guys was retiring from the youth division, and they were going to play golf. The three executives from the youth division were going to go play golf, and they needed a fourth. I'm sure they looked hard and wide and couldn't find anybody. So finally they said, you know, maybe Johnson will go with us. So I, I went with them to play golf, and we were over in Illinois somewhere, and we went by a little church called a Primitive Baptist Church. And those guys were saying, what, what's a primitive Baptist church? Does that mean it's got no indoor plumbing? Is, is there still an outhouse? What's, that, that notion of primitive is not about the plumbing or lack thereof, but it's about this notion of going back to the beginning. So it, it is not a, a pejorative term. It's, a, it's one that people choose. I, I'm a primitivist because primitivists believe that they got it right in the beginning. And the way that we get it right today is we go back and look at the beginning. So the word restorationism and the word primitivism are kind of two uses of this, you know, two, two words that kind of explain the same thing. We're going back to the book of Acts. And that's how, you know, that, that's what uh, Parham, Charles Parham, that you'll meet in just a little bit, was trying to do. Certainly what William Seymour was trying to do at Azusa Street. And that's what we, Oneness Pentecostals in particular, were trying to go back to the book of Acts. How did they do it? How did they do it in Acts 2? How did they do it in Acts 10? How did they do it in Acts 19? How did they baptize? How did people know they received the Spirit? Uh, they spoke in tongues. Those, that notion of going back is the, is the impulse that, that kind of gives life to the Pentecostal movement. So I, I mentioned Luther, and I can't tell the whole story tonight, so I'm going to jump in. Um, 17th century and talk about heartfelt religion. Um, after, after Luther's and, and the Reformation and that whole period of, of, of John Calvin and, and Zwingli and all the things that happened in the Reformation, there's a, a period in which they become very scholastic. They become very um, intellectual, I guess, probably is might, might be the right word. You might go to church on Sunday morning and the sermon would be on, I can hear Brother Gleason preaching this, you know, how many angels can dance on the head of a needle? Just really wonderful stuff. And when you left after Sunday morning, you were, you were you know, well-fed and uh, enthused. Uh, and so it became, almost, they almost became academic exchanges rather than sermons. And in, in, the, in the German tradition, in the German uh, Lutheran church, there was beginning of what is what we call today continental pietism. Continental is the continent of, of uh, Europe, and pietism is this notion of heart religion. So with, um, this idea that, that faith should be experienced, and, and, and you see this beginning of this phrase, I mean, obviously it's a biblical phrase from John 3, must be born again of the water and the spirit, but people talked about, that being a Christian isn't just something that you do with your head, it's something that you do with your heart. You just don't make a confession of faith and say, I believe on Jesus Christ. You, you invite Jesus to live in your heart and you 
you ask for heart surgery. You ask for him to uh, regenerate you, uh, make you new. And so uh, you see the use of this word born again uh, in a, um, a book called, well, in English, we would call it Pious Desires, 1675. Philip Jacob Spainer, uh, a German pietist who... Um, really becomes the father of this notion that, that if you're going to be a Christian, your heart should be changed. Now, we're going to talk about doctrine as we make our way through this weekend, but principally and primarily, Pentecostalism is a heart religion. I mean, we want to think the right thoughts. We want good theology, but we really want our heart changed. We, we want God to reach in and turn our life around and ultimately... Uh, you are what you love. You aren't, con- contrary to what a lot of people think, you aren't what you think. You are what you love. And what, what we believe happens in the Pentecostal faith is that God does surgery on our heart and we're born again. So that, that notion of being born again, <clears throat> obviously it's in the book of, you know, Jesus said that, so it's not like, like Spainer discovered it. He rediscovered what's in John chapter 3, this notion of being born again. <clears throat> and then one of the, um, the people who is influenced by these German pietists is a nobleman, uh, uh, a German nobleman named Count Nicholas von Zizendorf. Uh, he has a, a, a large estate called Hernhut. And it really is almost a utopian. Uh, he, he invites a lot of people to, to live there uh, with him on that estate. Uh, particularly, he invites some Moravians um, from what we would today call the Czech Republic, uh, who, had, who had been pushed out of their country because they um, rejected the Roman Catholic faith, and they they end up uh, in in Germany at Hernhut, and, and from from he and he was very uh, Jesus centric. Uh, he, if you go back and look at Zizendorf's theology, he, he, he talked a lot about Jesus, a pietist religion, heartfelt religion, uh, and this will be true of all Pentecostals, even Trinitarian Pentecostals. You'll find that they pray to Jesus. I, I, I went to a, another kind of seminary, just put it that way. I did my, my graduate work, and when I when they prayed in class, they always prayed to Father God. It's really the first time I'd really heard it, but it, the prayers always started, Father God, and we're coming to you today. And they usually finished with, um, in, in your son's name, Jesus. But growing up as a Pentecostal, we usually start our prayer. We may say, dear Heavenly Father, but more often we, we, we pray to Jesus. We have this understanding that when we're praying, we're praying to Jesus uh, and our, our music is very Jesus-centric. Uh, and, and Zizendorf had that same kind of focus on Jesus, uh, heartfelt religion. Uh, I think we get our, you remember watch night services? I might be talking about ancient history here, but I don't, I don't know. Uh, we used to spend New Year's Eve in church and we called it a watch night service. That, we really get that from, from Zizendorf. And also, we, I think we get... Uh, an Easter sunrise service. 
And the Moravians were the, the first Protestant missionaries. If you, were, if you go into some of the islands in the Caribbean, maybe sail in on a, on a cruise ship and land downtown, uh, one, of, one of the churches closest to the harbor in those, on those islands will be a Moravian church because these Moravians began to preach and, and, and had this missionary impulse. Uh, and let me tell you why that's important. Uh, because um, there was an English preacher's kid, son of a vicar named John Wesley. Uh, he had a multitude of siblings. Mother's Day, somebody, I'm sure somebody's preached at Mother's Day around here about Susanna Wesley, the, the great mother. Um, Wesley, his, his brother Charles, uh, go to Oxford University to do their education. And when they're in Oxford, they, um, they're very methodical in the way they approach their devotional life. They, they're very structured. They're very, uh, you know, they have sets of rules that they live by. And not only just sets of rules that they live by, but, but things they do every day. So much so that people said that you're worshiping God through a method. And they called them Methodists. So it was kind of a pejorative term that people used. These are the Methodist people. Uh, <clears throat> John, although he's very methodical in his, his pursuit of faith, he, he feels like that he's not arrived where he wants to arrive in his walk with God. He does go, however, as a young man, young single man, he goes to... Uh, he crosses the Atlantic Ocean, goes to what ultimately we would call the state of Georgia. Today it was a colony. This is, this is before 1776, so it's a, it's a British colony. I don't know if we have anybody from Georgia here. Any, any Georgians? Georgia is kind of like America's Australia. Um, that's where all the, the debtors, you know, if you couldn't, if you got put in debtor's prison in England, they sent you to Georgia, and you became an indentured servant in Georgia. Uh, Wesley's going there to, to look after those people and preach to them, and, and also trying to reach the Native Americans that, that are in Georgia. But he is um, spectacularly unsuccessful. He just can't pull it off. He's, he doesn't do well. Um, and Wesley, he was like, like many people struggled with his, with personal relationships and, and, and he particularly struggled with his relationship with women. He, um, he found a young lady that took his fancy and, uh, he struggled with whether or not he should get married. And then, then he, so, so one day he said to the young lady, if I was ever going to get married, I'd marry you, but I can't do that. I just can't. Well, she wasn't enthralled with that um, half proposal, so she promptly married somebody else. And come Sunday, when they came to church, Wesley said, you're not taking communion. I'm banning you. Uh, and then you can see how well that went down with uh, the parishioners who said, whose pastor is bringing his... Um, troubled relationships into the church. 
All of that to say that Wesley, with his tail tucked firmly between his legs, hits back to, Amer- back to England, uh, feeling like a, a failure. However, there is a reason I told you that story. However, on that ship was a Moravian named Peter Bowler. When, when they crossed the Atlantic, um, there, it's not supersonic jet traffic. It's, it's a sailing ship. And you want the wind to blow because you, you, you need to move. The only thing that can move you is the, is the wind in the sails. But you don't want it to blow too much. However, they got caught in a horrible North Atlantic storm. Wesley is scared spitless. He thinks he's going to die. But this bowler guy and, and the Moravians that are with him are sitting on the deck and they're singing and they have this incredible peace. And he's going like, what do you guys have that I don't have? How come... I'm, a, I'm an Anglican priest, preacher, pastor. I'm, I'm afraid to death that I'm going to die. But you Moravians, you have something that, that I don't have. And so when he gets back to London, he begins to continue to study with these Moravians and meets with them uh, at Aldersgate Street in, London, in the city of London. And one day when he's on his way to Aldersgate Street for one of those meetings, kind of house meetings, that he has with the Moravians. He's reading uh, Luther's introduction to his commentary on Romans. So I'm sure it's exhilarating reading. Uh, but he has, in, in Wesley's words, he has what he calls, his heart becomes strangely warmed. So he has some kind of an experience that is an emotional experience where he feels like God is working on his heart. And that changes John Wesley from being this unsuccessful, methodical kind of guy to somebody who, who is so energized by preaching the Christian faith. He travels on horseback probably 200,000 miles in England, preaches probably 40,000 sermons. Um, and he, he preaches this idea that, that you, your life can be perfected or you, you can be sanctified. So he taught this doctrine uh, that I'm going to call tonight uh, the second work of grace. You're saved, he said, and then you're sanctified. And when you're sanctified, and this is one of the doctrines that I wish were true. He said when you're sanctified... Your sin nature is removed completely, root and branch, and you'll never sin again. At least you'll never willfully sin again. You may, you may commit a sin of omission, but you'll never willfully sin again. I, I wish Wesley was right on that. But, but, he, and he, but he, he thinks that this sanctification experience is, is emotional or experiential, and, and, and I think motion is probably the wrong word. You'll, you'll know when it happens to you. It's not just like you'll believe one day that you're sanctified, but you'll be praying and you'll feel this power of God in your life. And when you're done with praying, you'll be sanctified. So, and, and that's what he, so he's, he's, or the words he uses sometimes is you'll be perfected or you'll have perfect love. So he's, he's preaching for this sanctified. He, he is the brand from the burning. He, he, he almost died as a child when the, Parsonage caught on fire, and they saved him. And he always said, I'm a, I was a brand plucked from the burning. I was going to die, but someone saved me from, from a dying 
from a burning house, and I'm committing my life to God. And he, he changes um, England. The period of history that we're in at this point is, is when France is going through the French Revolution, uh, throwing off the, the, the kings of, of uh, France and, and this radical revolution that's happened. That doesn't happen in, in England, some people suggest, because John Wesley changed England. With, with his preaching, he would preach outside early in the morning before the miners went to down into the, the coal miners. Sometimes, sometimes to crowds five, seven, as large as ten thousand people outside early in the morning without microphone. Uh, and and those those sermons, those services, people would weep. They would, they would fall to their knees. I think I've read occasions where they might have even spoke in tongues. They would dance. They would, or what sometimes we call in America, shout. They, the, the power of God would touch those miners, uh, both early in the morning uh, and often in the evening, as, as, as Wesley preached. And ultimately, that Methodist revival crosses the ocean and comes to America. Francis Asbury uh, it becomes the first Methodist bishop in, in what ultimately will become America. Um, and um, I guess I need to stay close to this mic. I'm sorry. I'm used to wandering around the classroom. Um, I'd like to tell you that with each passing year, the Methodists got more and more in love with Jesus and they became more and more like the book of Acts. But often a revival movement comes and we settle in and after a while we get cold um, and we lose some of our, our uh, enthusiasm. So what grows out of that Methodist movement is what's called the holiness movement. And the holiness movement is focused on this change of the heart. This, this idea that, that a, a person's heart needs to be changed and, that, and they're, they're preaching what Wesley preached. In fact, often they, become, they call themselves Wesleyans rather than Methodists because they're pushing hard for this change. And it's really out of this holiness movement that the Pentecostal movement gets birth. So we'll, we'll get to Pentecost in just a minute. There are four kind of theologies, four ideas that come together that are the root out of which Pentecostalism grows. The first we've already talked about, this notion about being born again. Christ is our Savior. So we're saved, we're born again. The second thing, Christ is our sanctifier. So he's the one who, who makes us holy. The third is, is Christ is our healer. And I, I want to talk about healing because Divine healing and Pentecostalism grow up together. And it, I'm not sure that the Pentecostal movement would have been birthed without this focus on healing of the physical body. And, and the, uh, the, the fourth doctrine is this idea that Christ is the soon coming king. This idea that the Lord is coming back. And in many, many ways, what identifies Pentecostals as Pentecostals is this this incredible hunger to reach the world with the gospel. 
the, the four corners of the world need to be touched by the gospel. So we're going to kind of visit those individually. Um, that is the holiness movement on a PC. Uh, so you have this declension within the Methodist movement. You have this first camp meeting um, for the promotion of holiness that happens in 19, 1867 in Vinland, New Jersey. And, and this, this idea that your, your heart needs to be changed. Um, Phoebe Palmer, she talks about an altar theology. Some of you that remember old songs, is you're all on the altar, the sacrifice laid, your heart does the spirit control. This, Palmer felt, you know, she pushed, if you need to preach hard that you need this altar experience where your life is changed. You need to encounter God at an altar in a church. Um, and in that, in that period of time, um, I told you that, that Wesley talked about this second work of grace as, as sanctification or perfection. His theological successor, the guy that kind of wrote uh, what he taught after he passed away, was named John Fletcher. And John Fletcher called that sanctification baptism of the Spirit or baptism of the Holy Ghost. So if you read uh, late 1700s, early 1800s, John John Fletcher, he's talking about baptism of the Spirit. And what happens in the holiness movement in the late 1800s is this language of spirit baptism uh, becomes ascendant. It becomes um, more and more in the, in the, in the vernacular of, of holiness people. William Boardman was a holiness preacher and writer who wrote Higher Christian Life in 1858, uh, in particular, the 1876, in the power of the Spirit. You're going to, if you read in the late 1800s, you hear people talking about spirit baptism. We're baptized in the Spirit, Holy Ghost power. They're not speaking in tongues, but they, they're talking about being baptized in the Spirit. In fact, one, one day I had a, a call from somebody who said they had a stock certificate to the Pentecostal Publishing House. So... For you that don't know, uh, one of the things I do is run the Pentecostal Publishing House, which is the publishing arm of the United Pentecostal Church. Um, and we never have had stock certificates. I don't know if we've ever made profits. Well, uh, got to meet the budget committee next week. It's been a tough, been a tough year. COVID's been tough on us. But they had the stock certificate, and they wanted to know, is it worth anything? So I said, send me a copy of the stock certificate. I'll take a look at it. I don't think we've ever offered stocks to anybody. And when that stock certificate came, it, Pentecostal Publishing House was started in 1944. This stock certificate was from 1900. And it came not from St. Louis, Missouri, but from Louisville, Kentucky. And strangely enough, Pentecostal Publishing House put a magazine out called the Pentecostal Herald, which was the name of the our official publication at Pentecostal Church for 60 or 70 years. Um, so I got to looking at who was the Pentecostal publishing house? Were they, were they Pentecostal? And, and I, as I looked at it, I come to find out that they, they weren't what we would call Pentecostal today. They were holiness people. And they were talking about 
baptism of the Spirit, but, and what they meant by it is this, what I'm going to call the second work of grace, this idea that you could be sanctified. You're saved and you could be sanctified. In fact, the, the Nazarene Church, which I think there's a Nazarene publishing house here in Kansas City somewhere, uh, it used to be called the Pentecostal Nazarene Church. The Nazarene Church is a holiness church. Uh, and before Pentecost has come to mean what it means today, the Nazarene called themselves the Pentecostal Nazarene Church. So th- this is that second work of grace. And in, in, the, in, in the late 1800s, you have this holiness movement that's, that's pushing this hard. You, you, you need this sanctifying experience. Uh, and that sanctifying experience, they're calling the baptism of the Spirit. Again, it's not speaking in tongues as the Spirit gives utterance. It's having this emotional encounter. Uh, let me see if I... I have no idea what I'm doing now. Um, but we're having fun. Uh, I am. We're all over the place. I'm going to leave that alone. Um, let me... So you have that, uh, this idea of, and I'm going to try to pull a couple threads. I'll pull them together, I promise you. I'm going to tell about three stories, then I'll try to pull the three stories together. One is this notion of the holiness movement and that you're sanctified, and that sanctification is called baptism of the Spirit. The second thing that, that happens, there, there's a, in England, in, in the lake country in England, um, there's an annual convention called the Keswick Convention. People leave London and Glasgow and some of those big cities and they come out to, to the country like we sometimes do in camp meetings. And every year they had a Keswick Convention. And they had a, every day Keswick focused, had a different focus. Ultimately what they were trying to do is, is to get people to live in what they called an overcoming life or a higher life. And they used again this language of baptism of the Spirit. So when the holiness people used the idea of baptism of spirit, they were talking about sin would be removed from your life root and branch. So sin would, would be taken away from you. When, when the higher life people talked about baptism of spirit, they said you, you'll be able to live above the power of sin. You'll have, this, you'll have this second blessing that comes into your life. And the purpose of the second blessing is to give you power to live above sin. Uh, so... The Pentecostal movement is going to come out of both the higher life movement and the holiness movement, but they're going to refine what it means to be baptized in Jesus, baptized in in the Spirit as they go back and look in the book of Acts. The the third group is the group that um, Charles Finney was an American revivalist in the beginning of the uh, 19th century uh, in what's often called the Second Great Awakening. And one of the things that Finney did, from Finney we get this idea of altar calls, which, you know, part and parcel of what it means to be a Pentecostal, to come to the front of the church and, and to kneel at an altar or have an altar bench across the front of the church, or sometimes they even called it an anxious bench, where you'd sit and think about your sin and, and, and ask God to deliver you from your sin. Uh, and he has this incredible revival over what was called the Burned Over District in upstate New York, but really across the Northeast with this, this Second Great Awakening. 
and, and he's talking about baptism of the Spirit. And if you read uh, Finney's biography, he talks one time about going into the woods and praying for hours. And if you read closely, you'll, I would conclude, I think you could probably conclude if you read, the, read it the same, same way I read it, I think Finney received the baptism of the Spirit. I think he spoke in tongues as the Spirit gave utterance. He didn't come out of there preaching everybody should do it, but I do think that Charles Finney spoke in tongues as he's hungry for God. He, he is incredibly passionate. Uh, and his kind of theology, uh, again, there's no test at the end of this, is called Oberlin perfectionism. So, and and, it, and it, it's the same kind of focus as, as Keswick. It's this notion of the power of, purpose of spirit baptism is to give you power to live above sin. So, and we're going to stop here in just a moment, take a, just a break. But I want you at, at the at the at the precipice of, of the Pentecostal movement, which is going to start in 1901, just a little bit west here in, in Topeka, Kansas. What's in the water or in the air that they're breathing are these ideas of the holiness movement that says you your heart needs to be changed, sin needs to be removed, root and branch, you need to be sanctified. This higher life that says. You need, a, you need the power of the Spirit in your life so you can live an overcoming life. Same thing that Finney is saying. You need the power of the Spirit. So there's this hunger for the Spirit in the life of a believer. Not just saying a creed, not just saying a confession at church, but saying, God, how do you change my heart? Let's look at the book of Acts to see how hearts got changed in the book of Acts. And ultimately, and maybe this is a good place to stop, for, for just a moment to, take, to stretch just a little bit, it, what, what's leading up to this um, outbreak of the Pentecostal movement is this deep abiding hunger for the spirit in the life of the believer. And the purpose, the reason they want the spirit is they want their heart changed. They, they want, they need an authentic faith. They don't want ritual. They want an experience. They, they want to encounter the power of a risen Savior. Uh, so they're looking for, you know, the kind of the theological uh, group of doctrines that kind of birthed the Pentecostal movement is that we're looking for Jesus to be our Savior. We're looking him, for him to be our sanctifier because we, we know that, that when, you're, when you become a Christian, your life should change. Your neighbor should know, right? The, the guy you work beside at work should recognize something happened. And then, and then, and, and I'll pick up on this after we take this short little break. Um, you, you're going to have this idea of, of physical healing, divine healing. One of the things the Spirit does in First Corinthians is there are these gifts of healing and gifts of miracles. And the church wants to recapture what happened in the book of Acts. People were healed in the book of Acts. Why aren't people being healed in the church today, people are asking. And then this, uh, this real focus on the Lord's coming back. He's our soon coming king and we want to go in the rapture of the church. So I'll pick those themes up in just a moment but why don't you, let's, let's stand for a minute and uh, can we bump elbows? Uh, can, is that? I stopped. Any questions? Anybody? At all? All right. Let's be seated and let me let me uh, Get you at least a Topeka tonight.
In the late 1800s, there was this emergence of, uh, of divine healing. People began to look at the Bible and said, you know, in the atonement, you know, by his stripes we are healed. So if, if Jesus not only purchased our salvation, but he purchased our healing on the cross. So let's, let's believe in, in healing. And, and, and a couple of things were happening in, in the broader Christian movement. So in, in the Roman Catholic faith, uh, healing almost is almost always associated with Mary. So if you know um, uh, Lourdes is a place in France where someone had a vision of Mary. Uh, and so Protestants were kind of leery of, of physical healing Conservative Protestants believed that obviously there was healing in the Bible, but the purpose of healing and miracles, they were reading 1 Corinthians chapter 12, uh, the purpose for healing was to establish the veracity of the Bible, the canon. And so when the canon was closed, when we had the Bible, there was no, there was no need for healing in the New Testament church. So... Um, they, they preached biblical healing, happened only in the book of Acts, but after the book of Acts, there wouldn't be physical, there, there wouldn't be any divine healing. But in the, in the late 1800s, people began to say, no, there's nothing in the Bible that teaches that. We should expect physical healing. So um, in, in New England, there was a guy named George Cullis who had a, a what he called a faith home. People began to believe that, that healing... Is um, made possible, obviously by Jesus, but really by faith in Jesus, and that and that if you if you could be around people who believed in healing and could talk to people that believed in healing, there's a better chance that you might be healed. So what what people would do is they go to these healing homes. They almost always lived out of the common pot, so you just kind of lived in in a communitarian kind of a like a dormitory. Uh, had your meals together, and and people talked about healing. They talked about faith, and, and uh, there was, and obviously, there were some results of that. People, some people got healed, and then you had these healing evangelists that traveled around. Um, there was a, a female uh, called Maria Wood, Woodworth Etter, who sometimes they called her the trans evangelist. Uh, she would. She traveled, did a great campaign in St. Louis, uh, was arrested in St. Louis for uh, putting people on. They, they said she hypnotized people. Cause, um, and often these faith healers would be arrested for practicing medicine without a license. Uh, Carrie Judd Montgomery was another faith healer. But a really interesting faith healer was, was an Australian guy named Alexander Dowie, who had immigrated from Australia and had, had uh, for a while preached on the west coast of the United States. But he ended up in Chicago in the late 1800s, and he, he started a utopian community called Zion, which is a little bit north of Chicago on, uh, on, on the lake. And uh, he, he preached faith healing. And, and, in fact, in the late 1800s, there was a world fair in Chicago, and... Um, 
people came from all over the world to this World's Fair, and, and the theme of that World's Fair was religion, worldwide religion. And, and Dowie set up a, a kind of a tent across the street from the World's Fair, and, and he would preach faith healing, that Jesus came to be, to be the healer, and he would get arrested for practicing medicine without a license. But Dowie believed there's no such thing as bad publicity. So he loved to get arrested because that made the newspaper that grew a crowd. And, and he got hundreds and thousands of people to move to Zion. Uh, they, they imported a lace factory from Ireland. Uh, they had their own post office, their own school. Uh, and and uh, Dowie was a, you know, a very significant uh, leader and some of the earliest Pentecostals are going to come out of Zion, Illinois. They're going to come out of, of out of Dowie's work. So uh, it, you have this whole notion of healing. There's there's growing interest in, in divine healing. A.J. Gordon is a Baptist preacher who began to preach this idea that healing is in the atonement. We should expect healing. We should believe for healing. Uh, bring people to church that are sick and believe that God can heal the sick. That's part of what it means to be a Christian. And then the, the, that fourth doctrine that, that I talked about is that idea of the soon coming king. The, the idea that Jesus is returning. That there is an early reign and a latter reign. And just before the Lord comes back, he's going to do something very similar to what he did when he was on earth. So the early reign was the life of Jesus in the book of Acts. But the Lord's coming back and just before he comes back, there will be this latter rain outpouring of the Spirit. And uh, he can't come until the gospel is preached in all four corners of the world, is what they thought. So they're very missionary-minded. Uh, and, and there's this idea that they want to be part of the bride of Christ, that, that you know, there's this rapture that's going to happen, and they need to be in the rapture of the church. They want to be part of the bride. And that is just... You know, there's prophecy conferences uh, in Niagara on the Lake up in upstate New York. Uh, D.L. Moody from Chicago is preaching this this idea that the Lord is coming back and, and quickly, and uh, we need to do all that we can. So all, that's the kind of the fervor that's in the late 1800s. That they're they're asking for divine healing. They're believing the Lord's coming back. They're wanting to be holy. They're, they're very focused on Jesus. They're worshiping Jesus. They're singing to Jesus. They're praying to Jesus. And in that, uh, in that atmosphere, there is a young man who grows up. Um, he was born in Muscatine, Iowa, uh, on, the, on the Mississippi River. But when he is a young man, a child actually, his parents immigrate, migrate, I guess not immigrate, but migrate from, from Muscatine to Kansas, just across, I was going to say the river, but I guess it's not across the river, just across the state line into, into, into Kansas, there was a wheat boom going on. People came um, to Kansas because they recognized it's a great place to grow wheat, and there was a need for, you know, the world population was growing, and the ability to transport wheat was uh, facilitated by trains, and so Kansas has this population boom. One of the people that comes is the one of the families that come is the Parham family. And the young boy was born in that family. His name's Charles Fox Parham. He was a sickly young man. Um, 
not a typical farmer's kid, more of a mama's boy than he was the rough and tumble farmer's son. Uh, his mother was a praying woman and a you know, believing woman. And as a child, he had some kind of encounter with God. Uh, and as he, when he grows into adulthood, he, he wants to be a preacher. Now, Parham is an interesting character. Uh, he, because he was sickly, he leans toward the medical profession. Because he's, his mother was such an influence in his life, he leans to being a preacher. And he can't bring the two of them together. Now, I, I, I want to tell you that 150 years ago, that uh, medicine was different than it is today. And we're not far removed from uh, elixir sold out of the back of a wagon or some special potion. That, so you had a lot of, well, I think medical science was improving. You still had some charlatans who were involved with, with uh, trying to convince, separate people from their money, I guess, and, and prey on them for having disease. So in, in Parham's mind, and you see the struggle a couple times in his life, he wants to go to be a doctor, but he feels like he's called to preach. And so he'll go to school, start, he'll start in medicine, and then he'll get sick. And when he finally is so sick he can't hardly, he can't hardly function, he throws his hands up and says, God, I, I surrender my life to you. And he becomes a preacher and says, I forget about medicine. And then... He goes back to medicine a couple times. But ultimately, he becomes a preacher, a, holiness, a Methodist preacher and then a holiness preacher uh, in a couple of towns across uh, the state line in, in Kansas. And then he joins this, the, this holiness movement. Um, and I, I don't know if I can get these pictures up here or not. Let me see. That's Parham. That's, yeah, we're going backwards now. So in, eight, in the late 1800s, he gets a building, that building right there that still stands in Topeka, Kansas uh, today, and he opens a healing home, Bethel Healing Home. Uh, and it's built kind of like Charles Cullis' healing home in Massachusetts. People come from around the country and live in the kind of the dormitory-like uh, accommodations, eat their meals together, he preaches, he actually does a lot of outreach to the poor and the indigent people in Topeka, uh, spends some time in ministry to the, the women of the night. Uh, he's doing what we today would call social gospel. Uh, he's, he believes that you know, when you preach the gospel, you should better people's lives. And he ultimately believes that, that healing is possible. And that if you are with people in this healing home and you're preaching faith, people will be healed. But somewhere near the uh, end of that century, he's, he becomes frustrated again that it's not happening fast enough. And so he goes, on an, he goes on an extended trip to find out what people are doing in other places. So he goes up to Zion, Illinois, to uh, Alexander Dowie's place, and he sees what they're doing in Chicago. He goes to Nyack, New York, where A.B. Simpson is, has a missionary training school and preaching about um, divine healing. Simpson had a heart issue and was at a camp meeting in Old Orchard Beach that Charles Cullis had, was preaching. And um, one evening in that service, 
His heart gets touched. He gets healed, physically healed. His heart gets, not, not spiritually, but physically, his heart gets healed. So Simpson preaches uh, uh, healing, and so uh, Parham wants to find out about what he's doing in Nyack, New York. He goes up into, a, into Maine, into Durham, Maine, uh, to a place called Shiloh, uh, where there's a Bible college called the Holy Ghost and Us Bible College uh, that really becomes the prototype for the Bible college that Parham's going to have in Topeka. Uh, and, and probably there uh, in, in Maine, he sees somebody speak in tongues for the first time, a genie glassy. Um, but, but he also finds a model for this Bible school that he has, uh, the, the Frank Sanford who runs that school is the, is the only teacher in the school and the only textbook they use is the Bible. So after he makes this trip and takes this all in, he comes back to Topeka, to this um, building in Topeka and he left some people in charge and they kind of liked being in charge. So he said, you know what? If you like being in charge and you want to run this place, you just go ahead and run it. And he, and if I can get this to go, yeah, it worked for me. Uh, he goes across town and there is this incredibly ornate building that's known locally as Stone's Folly in Topeka, Kansas. Uh, Erasmus Stone was a uh, lumberman in, in uh, Topeka. And uh, during one of the booms, he decides to build this house for his wife. Now, I'd, I'd read somewhere, I don't think this is true. I read somewhere, he was an Englishman. He was trying to get his wife to move to America, and he built this house for her, and she wouldn't come. But I don't know that that's true. It's a good story, though. Uh, he does, every room in the house that's finished is finished with different wood. But what happens is that the boom goes into a bust. They have a way of doing that, you know. Maybe you've experienced one or two of those. And so he leaves the house unfinished. So in Topeka, this, this house was known as Stone's Folly. Tried to build this house, and he had to leave it unfinished. And because it's unfinished, it's cheap rent for Charles Parham. And Charles Parham starts a Bible college here in Topeka, Kansas. Same name as the healing home. Instead of Bethel Healing Home, this is called Bethel Bible College or Bethel Bible School. And he starts in the fall of 1900 uh, teaching. And he's, te- he's doing the same thing that Frank Sanford was doing at the Holy Ghost and Us Bible School in Shiloh, Maine. He is the main teacher. And the textbook he's using is the Bible. And he... Um, He's teaching his way through that curriculum in the fall. Just, just before Christmas, he, he's going on a, a, a preaching engagement. He's leaving town for a couple of days, and he, he challenges his students. He said, he said to his students, I want you to look in the Bible. I want you to look in the book of Acts, and I want you to find out if there's any uniform evidence of being baptized in the Spirit. What happened in the book of Acts to people that were spirit baptized? And is there any, his language would be, is there any Bible evidence of what it means to be baptized in the Spirit? So when he returns in the last few days of December of 1900, 
uh, he asked the students, what is the uniform, is there a uniform sign of spirit baptism in the Bible, in the book of Acts in particular? And they answer, yes, there is. When we look at the book of Acts, the uniform evidence of baptism of the spirit is speaking in other tongues. So, as the new year turns, this is December 31, 1900, and January 1, 1901. They're having, what I mentioned before, a watch night service. Um, They're praying the new year in. And in that service, uh, there is a young lady named Agnes Osman who is praying, and she asked uh, someone to lay hands on her like they did in the book of Acts. And Agnes Osmond begins to speak in tongues as the Spirit gives the utterance. And that is really the birth of the Pentecostal movement. This, uh, Agnes Osmond later gets married. Um, her, name is, her married name was LaBurge. Uh, she became a preacher. She was older. She was not a college student. She was probably middle-aged when she was the baptism of the Spirit. And um, allegedly, she spoke in Chinese for uh, quite a length of time uh, and even wrote in Chinese. I've seen the writing. I don't know Chinese, but I think I know enough about Chinese to know that it probably wasn't Chinese. But she was speaking in tongues as the Spirit gave utterance. Now, I, I think we, I, I should mention that <clears throat> it, it, the Pentecostal movement is not birthed by someone speaking in tongues and Agnes Osmond is not the first person to speak in tongues since the close of the book of Acts. People spoke in tongues throughout history. They were speaking in tongues in the late 1800s. And I already mentioned that Charles Parham probably saw Jeannie Glassie speak in tongues in Shiloh, Maine in the late, in the late 1800s. Why we think, why I would say Charles Parham is the founder of the Pentecostal movement is because he develops a doctrine and it's the doctrine of that that the initial evidence, or the what he would say, the Bible sign of speaking it, of, of receiving the baptism of the Holy Ghost is speaking in tongues as the Spirit gives utterance. So he you look, he goes in Acts chapter two. It's what happens to the to the apostles disciples in, in Acts chapter two. It's what happens in Acts chapter ten, and Acts chapter eleven, Acts chapter nineteen. So. He's, he links this idea of speaking in tongues with the baptism of the Spirit, and he has an incredible uh, outpouring of the Spirit that ultimately the, the Pentecostal revival is the most significant revival in the history of Christendom. It, there, are probably, there are probably 650 million people worldwide who are Pentecostal, charismatic, or Pentecostal-like in a hundred in 20 years, this, this revival has, uh, has surrounded the globe. In fact, as the center of gravity of Christendom changes from the northern hemisphere to the southern hemisphere, uh, it's more likely to be a Christian if you're in the southern hemisphere than if you're in the northern hemisphere. Most of those uh, Christians in the southern hemisphere are Pentecostal or Pentecostal, have been influenced by the Pentecostal movement. So, um, Naparam is an interesting guy. I don't know if I... Uh, he comes to Kansas City in 1901. So, this is... 
and actually January of 1901. So LeBurge speaks in, in tongues um, that first day, and, and, and a couple of other people speak in tongues. Um, and he's ready to go on the road and preach this. So he comes to Kansas City uh, to 1675 Madison Avenue. Some of you may know where that is, and I'm assuming it's downtown Kansas City somewhere. And he has a he has a he begins to preach. He he uh, has he, he sometimes will draw a pretty good crowd. in Kansas City. There's a notable healing. A lady named Jenny Kane is healed, and newspapers pick up the story. In fact, if you if you go to the newspaper archives here in Kansas City, you you'll find a lot of stories uh, about Parham being in Kansas City. In 1901. Now, they're not usually very positive. Um, sometimes we think the media is tough today. 150 years ago, the media was really tough. Newspapers, there were competing newspapers in town, and uh, you'll read some interesting stories. Uh, sometimes he he rented the Academy of Music, and which was a larger had a larger um, auditoriums and as the crowd would grow. Um, he actually wrote his, his first book while he was here in Kansas City. Uh, a Voice Crying in the Wilderness, Cole Care Bombadar, uh, in, in 1902, which really is the, the first Pentecostal theology book ever written. It's written here in Kansas City in 1902 by Charles Parham. Um, but that you know the what would happen with Parham is that this tension that was in his life about medicine and healing and preaching uh, in this particular case he had a young son uh, his namesake Charles Jr. who when he was in Kansas City and he was just you know I think less than a year old contracts some kind of illness and dies. And Parham doesn't know what to do with him. He's, his faith is shattered. Like, I'm preaching healing. I'm believing. I'm seeing people heal. I see Jenny Crane get healed. My son gets sick. I pray for my son. My son dies. What do I do? So, um, you know, people are people no matter how much the Lord moves on them. So he, he kind of withdraws a little bit, trying to regroup. How do I process? He grieves. My, my child my son, my namesake, has died. Uh, it goes back to Topeka for a while. Uh, and then um, this is, um, yeah, that's the first significant revival. Um, he doesn't really, the, the, the Pentecostal movement doesn't really get traction until 1903. So the first real revival in the Pentecostal uh, Movement happens in, in 1903, and it's south of Kansas City in a place called El Dorado Springs. Um, I, I mentioned earlier that medicine wasn't what it, what it is today, 150 years ago. And so hot springs, uh, natural hot springs that would come up out of the ground with minerals in them and, and really, really hot, hot water, people that were ill frequented hot springs because they needed relief from the pain that they were in. Couldn't go get a Tylenol. Um, so you went to the hot springs. And so like hot springs, Arkansas, places like that would 
they would develop these hot springs, and there would be stairs that you could walk down into the hot springs, and you would sit in that hot, sulfur, smelly water, and uh, it would bring some kind of soothing to your aching muscles, aching, whatever, whatever ailed you. They felt that maybe this, this uh, hot springs could help. So El Dorado Springs is one of those places, probably an hour, an hour and a half south in Kansas City. Was that, was that am I right? Uh, a little over? Okay. Well, Parham, Parham says, I'm going to set up shop at this hot. I, I know there are sick people here, so I'm going to preach here. So he is, he is preaching at kind of what we would call a street service at the top of the stairs where people are coming up out of the hot springs at El Dorado Springs. And one day he's preaching, a lady comes up. Her name is Mary Arthur. She's from uh, the town of Galena, Kansas, just across the state line. Galena was a mining town. Uh, Galena, in fact, is a, is a kind of lead. Mary Arthur, kind of a textbook. I don't know if she was a hypochondriac. That's probably unfair. She was ill. She made regular trips to the hot springs. And she had a, she had a, a list of ailments that uh, caused her trouble. And when Parham's preaching, he's preaching about healing and she believes that God can heal her. And her testimony is that while Parham's preaching, <clears throat> she's healed of much of her illness. And so she invites Parham to come to Galena. Her husband is a mine owner there. Um, and they have a, a, a larger house. And she said, you know, you need to, everybody, in, everybody in Galena knows I'm sick. I'm sick a lot. But I'm not sick anymore. You prayed for me. Jesus healed me. I want you to come and tell everybody the message that, that you know, the, the good news about how they can be healed and, what it, and how they can have a deeper experience with God. And so he does. And before long, the, the, the meeting outgrows the house until, until uh, by the end of that year, they're meeting in the Grand Leader Building in downtown Galena, Kansas. Uh, the crowds are almost, they top a thousand people. And hundreds of people are receiving the baptism of the Spirit in Galena, Kansas. In fact, Mary Arthur goes on to be a pastor of the church that started in Galena, Kansas. Uh, Howard Goss, who becomes the first general superintendent of the United Pentecostal Church, is a miner in Galena, Kansas. Uh, he, he'd gone, he got working in the mine, and the people who owned the mine saw that he had some leadership uh, potential. They said, if you're, gonna, if you're going to um, advance in this business, you need to go back to school, graduate from high school. So Goss quits his job in the mine and goes back to high school. His high school teacher is Mary Arthur's sister. And she invites Howard, who is, by his own confession, an agnostic, maybe an atheist, but at least an agnostic, uh, to, to one of these meetings. And uh, he sees incredible miracles happen. And Howard Goss uh, is baptized by uh, Charles Parham in Jesus' name in the uh, 
the Branch River there in Galena, Kansas. So uh, that's kind of the birthplace of Pentecostal. So it's not far from Kansas City. And Kansas City has a kind of a role in this larger story of, of, the, of the birth of Pentecostalism. Uh, Parham was an interesting guy. I don't, I don't know how else, to, how else to describe him. He knew how to get a crowd. Somewhere, somewhere Parham uh, came across some costumes from the Middle East, like what a Bedouin Arab would wear. Um, and I, I'm moving back in history to time before the internet and television and there wasn't much entertainment around. So the way, the way uh, Parham would gain a crowd is he would get, a, he had a band of young people that worked with him, but they would all come marching down the, the main street of a town with a big banner saying the apostolic faith. And they would be dressed in these costumes from the Middle East and he would start his lecture by saying, this is a Bindu and Arab, this is what they would wear. And, and then he would roll right into preaching. And uh, in that area in, where Kansas, Missouri, and Oklahoma come together, in Joplin, that really, that's really the cradle of Pentecostalism. So Galena, Kansas, Joplin, Missouri, uh, Baxter Springs, uh, 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 Kansas, in, in uh, the name of the town I've forgotten right now, there is the very first place that a church building was built to house a Pentecostal congregation. Um, Parham had a tendency to work too hard, preach too much, wear himself out, and you guessed it, right? Get sick. So he is he's preaching hard in, in, in Joplin, having great results, but wears himself out. Uh, there is a family that had came up from, from Texas, from uh, Orchard, Texas, which is just outside Houston, Texas. And, and they said, you know, why don't you, come, why don't you come to Orchard and just rest? You are, you're exhausted. You'll probably feel better if you just take some time to rest. You're, you're having service every night. And I'm old enough to remember when we used to have revivals that went seven nights a week. Anybody remember that? Third week, we got Monday night off. These early Pentecostals made us look like wusses. They, I, I, I was reading, we have in the archive Howard Goss's diary. And I was reading his way through his diary. I, I, I think it was like six months he never missed a night of church. Except there was one day that he was moving from one location to another location to set up shop to have church again. And he didn't have it that one night because he hadn't quite arrived. So Parham, that was, he kind of wore himself out. He went to Orchard, Texas. But he, once he got to feeling well, he said, you know, let's have church. So they started having church in Orchard, Texas. And that part of Texas at that time in history was a lot like Galena, Kansas. It was the same socioeconomic background of the people. The people in Galena were miners, rough-living, tough-living miners, and hungry people for, for God. And that's where the revival broke out. Revival always breaks out where people are hungry. 
God rarely forces himself on us. He's looking for people who are hungry. And so Houston at that time is the, is the, the, you're the beginning of the oil booms happening. So you have what we would call wildcatters. Uh, and it's in that same kind of demographic that these people, hard-living, hungry people, are looking for God, looking for more to life than oil wells or lead ore. Uh, and and a revival breaks out in Houston. And um, Parham moves his operations from from the tri-state region of Oklahoma, Missouri, and Kansas down to Houston, Texas. He starts another Bible school. Uh, has a Bible school in Rusk Avenue. And people, you know, and there's, an, again, you'll, you'll see the same themes emerge. There is a very prominent woman in Houston who's, who is healed uh, of a, a very severe affliction. And she uh, writes in the newspaper, talks about the fact that she is healed uh, by the power of God. And, and that uh, there's a group of people in um, holiness people in Houston, Bruner Tabernacle, that embrace Pentecostalism. And then, and then gospel, or not gospel, but uh, Parham begins to send his people out into to Galveston and to Columbia and Victoria, all these little towns out from Houston, and these these gospel bands go out and they they do the same thing. They they carry the flag, the the big banner down the middle of the town, and they preach the power of Pentecost, and uh, churches are established. Pentecost, and then they they will come to Orchard for a, a camp meeting or an Easter convention, and uh, they'll preach about the power of the Holy Ghost. People receive the baptism of the Spirit. And it's in Houston that um, um, in, in, that Parham's preaching in Houston. He he runs across the lady. I'm not I'm not sure exactly um, how this happens. This is the segregated South. This is the time of Jim Crow. In fact, Jim Crow is becoming stronger and stronger in the South. Um, during this this period of you know after the reconstruction in the period that sometimes we call the redemption period but I'm not sure how redemptive it was in fact I'm pretty sure it wasn't redemptive uh, very oppressive um, <clears throat> but Houston was was there was some money in Houston and this is the beginning of the automobiles um, and so some rich people in Houston had bought automobiles but the problem with driving an automobile was there weren't many roads to drive them on, and the roads that you drove your automobiles on were used by horses. And horses eat food, and they process that food, and then they get rid of the processed food. So what they would do, I, just, I was in Houston a couple of years ago. We were dedicating a, a, a headstone to somebody I'll talk about, Lucy Farrell, and, and somebody told me the stories. Um, they would sweep the streets every evening. And then everybody would bring their car out. They could drive for an hour or two in the evening with uh, clean streets. And probably people got out and walked on those streets when they were clean. So you didn't have to step around the piles. And probably on one of those evening walks, Charles Parham met this African-American lady named Lucy Farrell. Lucy Farrell was a holiness preacher 
And she heard the message of Pentecost and said, that's what I want. I want what you've got. And uh, he preached, contrary to the Jim Crow South, they, he preached for Lucy Farrell in, her, in, the, in the little mission that she had. Um, and she ultimately became a governess for the, for the uh, Parham family, traveled some with the Parham family. She, she was um, allegedly the niece of Frederick Douglass. On the way over this afternoon, I was listening to a new book on, on Frederick Douglass. Um, and she had an incredible gift of laying on of hands. She, she is the unknown story of Pentecost. Because she, Howard Goss, um, I, I did a dissertation on Howard Goss, so forgive me, forgive me of all the Goss stories. Uh, my wife thinks he's family because I, I talk about him all the time. <laughs> Uncle Howard. Um, I, I told you that he was baptized by Parham in, in, in Kansas in Jesus' name, but he never received the baptism of the Spirit. He sold all his farm, all of his mining equipment and joined and, and became a preacher and yet been baptized in the Spirit. He went to one of those conventions in Orchard and received the baptism of the Spirit and spoke in tongues on the train. When he got off the train, he still was speaking in tongues. People didn't know what was had happened to him. But after that first experience, he never spoke in tongues again for months until Lucy Farrow prayed for him. And he spoke in tongues. And then he said, after that, I was able to break into tongues when I, when I was praying in the Spirit. And so Lucy Farrow is an incredibly important person. Um, she has a young man, uh, another incredible story, a young man named William Seymour. Who, who becomes an assistant pastor in this little mission? An African American uh, man who was he was born in Louisiana. Both of his parents, as you can imagine, this period of time, both of his parents had been slaves. They were freed by the Emancipation Proclamation. Uh, he grew up as a young man in Louisiana, but like many young African Americans of that time, young men particularly, he migrated north. He went up the Mississippi River. He he worked in hotels and worked in bars in Memphis and St. Louis and Chicago. He eventually, eventually ends up in, in uh, Indianapolis. And while he's in Indianapolis, he runs across some people called the Evening Light Saints. And he has to change a heart. Change, he goes from being a bartender to being a preacher. Uh, he goes to a, um, a Bible school for briefly in... in uh, Cincinnati, Ohio, a place called God's Bible School. And there, and this is just a remarkable story, there he, he first hears and, and captures this vision that the church should be one, that the church should be on the leading edge of breaking down racial tension and racial barriers, that uh, the people of all nationalities and all ethnicities should worship together, that Somehow, and this is one of the mysteries I don't think anybody's figured out yet, he decides to go south again. And he ends up in Houston, Texas. And he ends up working in that church with Lucy Farrell. And because of Lucy Farrell's relationship with Charles Parham, he's invited to go to Parham's Bible school. Now, some people say that he had to sit outside that he wasn't allowed in the school, that he had to listen to the window, he had to listen to the open door. 
I've, I've done a lot of work on it. I, I think he was inside. Uh, there's no record. Everybody quote, when you do history, you, you try to go back to primary sources, and everybody quotes this. It's the circular firing squad. They all quote each other. So I'm going, like, where is the roots of this story? And the roots of that story, there was a, somebody did a, a bachelor's degree thesis on the Pentecostal movement in 1914, a guy named Charles Shumway, a, 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 a University of Southern California. And he makes the assumption because it was in the South, it was segregated. And everybody, when you, trace, when you do all historical detective work, everybody goes back to Shumway, and Shumway's making this assumption. Parham's wife said that he sat inside. Goss would suggest that he sat inside. Anyway, William Seymour's in there. He hears this message about the baptism of the Spirit. He's a holiness preacher, saved, sanctified, but he, he, he hasn't received the baptism of the Spirit. <clears throat> but he's preaching in, in Lucifero's church, and there's a visitor who comes to Houston from Los Angeles named Neely Terry. Uh, Neely is from a, a, a little mission on the corner of 9th and Santa Fe Avenue in Los Angeles, California. Um, and the name just left me. Um, a lady pastor. She wanted to be a missionary to Liberia. When she met the missions board, they said, you need to get some experience. Julia Hutchins, her brain just works slower than it used to. Uh, they said, you need, to, you need to pastor a church. So Julia Hutchins pastors, starts this little church in Ninth and Santa Fe in, in Los Angeles. Uh, and she's pastored it now long enough that she's resigned the church and she's going to, she wants to go to Liberia to be a missionary. So Neely Terry says, we need a pastor for our church. And so they approach Parham, said, do you have anybody to pastor this church? And Parham said, well, I don't know if he, they approached Parham, but anyway, the message gets to Seymour, and an invitation is extended to Seymour that he would become a, um, he would go to Los Angeles. They talked to Parham, and eventually Parham agrees that, yes, you, you can go to Los Angeles. Now, Parham, or Seymour, doesn't have the baptism of the Spirit. He believes it, he preaches it, he hasn't experienced it. So he goes, and, I just, and I'm going I'm to leave us in Los Angeles in just a moment here, but let me, let me get you to Los Angeles before I send you home tonight. Um, he goes to Los Angeles, and he starts preaching in the church, newly elected pastor in the church, and he tells the people, you think you've got the Holy Ghost, but you don't. You've been sanctified, but you haven't been spirit-filled. What you're calling the Holy Ghost is not the Holy Ghost. When you receive the Holy Ghost, you'll speak in tongues. And they're not happy. Julia, who the former pastor, she hasn't gone to Liberia yet. She still has some influence. So you'll hear some stories that say that he preached one time and they locked the doors on him. He preached more than one time. He preached maybe a couple of weeks. But the story is correct. They did lock the doors on him. They changed the locks on him. So he get, he, he's in Los Angeles, uh, single black man, uh, He's been invited to pastor. Now he's been kicked out of the church. One of the, one of the families in the church, the Edward Lee family, takes pity on him and say, you know, come live with us. You, you, need, you need somewhere to stay. And they start having prayer meetings. Uh, another family that was in that church called the Asbury family. 
they start having these cottage prayer meetings. And finally, you know, Seymour says, I, I need Lucy Farrell. I'm, I'm preaching about the Holy Ghost. These people are believing in the Holy Ghost, but no one's received the Holy Ghost. In fact, I haven't received the Holy Ghost. We need Lucy. So Lucy made it to Los Angeles into that prayer meeting. And, and it's that, by now they're in the Asbury families. Uh, that, the house still stands today. It's 214 Bonnie Bray Street in Los Angeles. And if you go to Los Angeles before you go to Disneyland, you've got go to you gotta go to Bonnie Bray. Um, it's a museum that talks about the early, the early days of Pentecost in Los Angeles. Um, they're in that house. Edward Lee's hungry for the Holy Ghost and said, you know, pray for me. And Lucy said, not yet. Then after they're praying for a while, she said, come here. Lays hands on Edward Lee. And Edward Lee receives the baptism of the Spirit. Before long, the Asbury's receive the Holy Spirit. So does William Seymour. Um, and the crowds start coming to that little house on Bonnie Bray Street in Los Angeles. In fact, the porch breaks because so many people are on the porch. And they're looking for another place to have church. And not too far down the road, there's, an, a, there's a, a building that <clears throat> used to be uh, AME Church. Uh, but they had abandoned the church, built a new building. It had been a livery stable, been a lumber yard. It had burned, uh, and it used to have a pitched roof, and they built it back with a flat roof. And that, that building is at 312 Azusa Street. And that's the home of the famous Azusa Street Revival. I will argue that if Topeka is the birthplace of Pentecostalism, Azusa Street is the cradle of Pentecostalism. And let me stop right there. We're in Azusa Street and revival's happening for the next three years. Incredible revival. Brother Pastor, you... Uh,